I know you've heard the expression that there are only two absolute certainties, death and taxes. I know you've heard that expression. I believe that that is a really big understatement. There are a lot of other things that are certainties too. Uh, For instance, the washing machine will break. Uh, The car will need repair. Uh, Our friend Brian and his family are visiting from California. He said his air conditioner is out. The air conditioner will go out on the hottest day of summer. I mean, these are certainties. And you could add to that, you could say, it will cost more. And it will take longer to fix, and on and on. There are a lot of certainties in life. That idea that the only certainties in life are death and taxes, that's a real bad understatement to be sure. But today, for a few moments, we want to talk about what I think is the most certain of all certainties. And it's in that text that Caleb read for us a moment ago from first, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. So think of this, and try to picture it in your mind, and it actually should weigh pretty heavy upon us. How terrible it would be to face that certainty of judgment unprepared. What if we fall short in that eternal evaluation? Based upon this certainty that there is judgment coming, based upon that certainty, the Apostle Paul uses an interesting expression in the very next verse. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Judgment is coming. It is a certainty. And knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We want to talk about that last expression. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That will be our lesson for a few minutes this morning. We stop here just briefly to thank you all for being here. We're grateful for your presence on this Lord's Day. So thankful that we have a chance to come together in this comfortable place to meet, to to worship, to encourage one another. It's a really great thing, and we should never take it for granted. But we don't want to take you for granted either. We're grateful for every single worshiper this morning. We've got visitors, and we're always grateful for visitors. Thanks for coming. Come whenever you can. To our own members, we're always grateful to see you too. I, I, I... I would not want us to leave the impression that when we see you, although we see you regularly, when we see you, we take, no, we don't take that for granted either. We're glad to see you. Thanks for everybody who's here today. I hope and pray that God will accept our worship and it will be a glory to him. That's our primary objective. All right. So knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, judgment's coming. There's no doubt about it. We're going to receive the things done in the body according to that that we've done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Well, let me ask you a question. What do we know about the terror of the Lord? He says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What do we know about the terror of the Lord? Well, I think one thing that we could say is that the terror of the Lord equals the goodness of God. In in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, it says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. So Paul says there in Romans 11, verse 12, Behold, the goodness and severity of God. Yeah, there's a lot of emphasis on the goodness of God, and, and that's as it ought to be. 
God deserves our praise and our honor and our adoration because He is such a good and loving God. Just look around. Look at the things that we enjoy, the blessings that we have in, in, our, in our physical lives. Think about this wonderful time and place where we live. We are just abundantly blessed people. It's incredible. It's, it's almost beyond imagination to just think about the physical blessings that we have in this world. All gifts from God. But man, if you stop to think about the spiritual blessings that God has showered upon us, that, that He has redeemed us, purchased us with the precious blood of His only begotten Son. When we think about all the spiritual blessings, I'm telling you what, we have a good and loving God. But when you think about His goodness, when you think about His love and His mercy and grace, all to be greatly praised, but when you think about that, understand what Paul says there in Romans 11, verse 22. There's another side to that. Behold the goodness and severity of God. And so the severity of God is in, in par with his goodness, and we need to understand that. You know, there are a lot of examples that we could draw from uh, pointing out that his, his goodness is equaled with his severity. Think about the historic examples of God's severity. I just want to call you, to your mind some Old Testament examples that you know very well. For instance, we could go to Adam and Eve, the very first man and woman. And God was really good to them and blessed them so abundantly. In Genesis chapter 1, right at the end of the creation week, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw that everything that He had made, and uh, God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. And so God had made a perfect creation for man and woman. Adam and Eve enjoyed His goodness. But when they sinned, they suffered His severity. In chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, look at verse 16, beginning... Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall have rule over thee. And to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Uh, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and, shall, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Oh, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? Pretty severe. God was really good to Adam and Eve, but when they sinned, he was really severe in punishing them. That's the idea here. We know the terror of the Lord. Uh, there are a whole lot of other examples of the same thing. We could go just a couple chapters over to Noah. Uh, and, and the world had been blessed in the days of Noah, but men turned evil. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil con continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart and the Lord said I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowl of the air for it repenteth me that I've made them God had made everything he made everything wonderful man had turned into total wickedness and you know the result of the flood mentioned in chapter 7 of Genesis verse 17 the flood was upon 
the, the flood was 40 days upon the earth and the waters increased and bare up the ark and it was lifted up above the earth and the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth and the ark went up upon the face of the waters and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the high hills that were under the whole earth were covered. Fifteen cubits and upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered and all flesh died that moved upon the earth both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man. To all those who want to think only about the goodness of God, we wonder and would like to ask them, have you ever read about Noah's flood? Have you ever read that expression in chapter 7 of Genesis, verse 21? Everything died, including every man with the exception of Noah and his family, obviously. A, a, a perfect historical example of the severity of God. We could talk about other instances. Do you remember Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16? The people have been blessed with deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Moses had come at the direction of God and led them out of that slavery and they hadn't got too far down the road until they complained about Moses. I may have said, did I say, I may have said no. Moses had brought them out of Egyptian bondage. And they hadn't gone very far down the road until they complained about Moses and Aaron and their leadership. Uh, so God had blessed them in delivering them from slavery. But when they rebelled against his chosen leaders, you remember that the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his companions, and then fire descended from heaven and devoured 250 more of those who had lined themselves with Korah. God had been good to them. He severely punished them. Example after example, the fiery serpents. God had blessed the people with manna. But they complained. After a while, they complained that, they, that this free food, from, free food from heaven, all they had to do was stoop down and gather it up. They complained about the manna and God sent fiery serpents and uh, over and over and over again then. We see these historical examples of God's severity. We know about the terror of God. We also know that there are a lot of New Testament warnings about God's severity and his impending judgment. I want to I highlight just a few verses all from the book of Hebrews. We're studying the book of Hebrews here in our Sunday morning adult class in the auditorium. And so I could pick out warnings all through the New Testament. I'm just going to pick out some warnings stated in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Hebrews 10:31. It is a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12, beginning verse 28. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Again, those are just some statements out of the book of Hebrews alone. And so many other warnings are found in the scripture. We know a good bit about the terror of God. It's equal to his goodness. There's lots of examples of it in the scripture. We're warned over and over about it. That being the case. Okay. Therefore. So knowing the terror of the Lord. 
Therefore, since we know the terror of the Lord, what do we do? Well, he says, we persuade men. I want to emphasize, we persuade men. Who's the we here? Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Well, obviously, Paul was including himself here, but I think he includes all of us who are aware of the terror of the Lord. Those of us who know should be motivated to act, to tell others, to warn others about impending judgment. We need to tell them. We need to warn them. We need to help them be ready for what is coming. You know, the idea that we would take on this job of warning others about the terror of the Lord is is kind of an interesting thing. It's what God chose to do. God chose that those of us who know would share this information with others who don't yet know. He could have done it other ways, obviously. Uh, God could have provided these warnings by way of dreams or visions. Uh, He could have sent special messages. He could have given some sort of direct guidance. But instead, he chose this mechanism, that those of us who know will therefore tell others to help them prepare. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So we must be the persuaders. Those of us who know must tell others. Romans 10, beginning verse 13 Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? The only way this is going to work, the only way the unprepared world will be ready to face God's judgment and avoid the terror of his punishment, the only way is if we persuade them. So, This would extend then to the the whole world of lost people around us. And I think it would further extend to even our own brethren who might have slipped and fallen back. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So again, the emphasis here is this is our job. We know the terror of the Lord. We, we are aware of all those examples in the Bible. We understand the warnings that are stated in the Scripture. We know the terror of the Lord. We then should be telling other people. And if we don't, effectively, we're letting them race toward judgment and eternity unprepared. We need to persuade them. Notice that we persuade men. Uh, we, we, we can't force men to do something. You know, there have been some efforts, historical efforts, to try to force people to serve God. I think all of us are somewhat, maybe not thoroughly, but somewhat familiar with the Crusades back in the Middle Ages. Uh, in the 11th, 12th, 13th century in particular, the, the Catholic Church endorsed actual use of military force to try to convert people to their cause. Uh, some of the crusades were to fight against the Muslims. Uh, that, that fight against the Muslims existed way back then. And there was a, there, there was a, a military campaign to re-seize control of the city of Jerusalem. That was part of the, part of the crusades. Uh, there, were other, there were a number of other endeavors, uh, military activities that were engaged to force people into compliance with what the Catholic Church had to say. Well, that's not the way it's to be done, right? We don't don't do this by force. 
It has to be a willing choice. Yet, before people can make that choice, it has to be offered. And we need to urge people. We need to persuade people. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, the Lord said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will... Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. I'm reading the wrong verse there. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. I will come to him and will sup with him. And so we persuade men like the Lord said, if any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in into him. We need to persuade people that that is so. In John chapter 6, verse 44, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. Think about that for a minute. Think about what Jesus said. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up the last day. Now, what's that describing anyway? You can't come to the Father unless you have been drawn. How are you drawn? The very next verse goes on to explain. This is John 4, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. How are you drawn? By being taught. And that's our job. We persuade men. In Acts chapter 19, verse 8, the apostle Paul went into the synagogue and spake boldly in the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. So that's our job. We must persuade men. I would suggest to you that this, this act of persuasion is an acquired skill. And, and you may not feel that you're particularly good at it right now. Uh, and, and that may be a, a good, honest evaluation. But it doesn't have to stay that way. We can learn and become more skilled at persuading men of their need to prepare for death and judgment and eternity, understanding the terror of the Lord. Uh, it, we, we should persuade men. And then the final part of that expression, so we, us, we don't use force, but we persuade. But we, who are we trying to persuade here anyway? We persuade men. You might think that the persuasion here that has to take place is we've got to persuade God. We've got to persuade God to save us. Now, we're in a bad shape here. And, and, and so we've got to beg and plead with God if he would save us. Now, there's some religions that actually teach that. I'm sure you have heard about the mourner's bench approach and and the concept of praying through to God. Some religious folks have taken that position. What you got to do now, if you realize that you're in jeopardy of eternal damnation, you've got to come to the mourner's bench and you've got to pray, and you've got to pray, and you've got to pray. You've got to pray through you got to beg God to save you, and maybe ultimately He will. That's, a, that's an inaccurate picture of things. You don't have to persuade God. God is already willing to save. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to, to be lost. We don't have to persuade him. He's already willing and ready to save men. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 says, Our God will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Think of that. God is ready. 
God is willing. You don't have to beg Him. You don't have to plead with Him. The one that needs persuading is men, not God. In Isaiah chapter 52, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, says, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face that He will not hear. So we're separated from God, right? But notice in Isaiah 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto God, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And so again, God's ready in that regard. It's up to us. So, a a sort of a simple expression here on the part of the Apostle Paul. We know the terror of the Lord. He speaks about the certainty of impending death and judgment. And he says, since we know that we are serving a God of terror, we know the terror of God, we've got to persuade men. Now, again, we know that God's a very good God. Nobody's denying that. But, but we have to see both sides of God here. While a good God, he is a God that punishes evil. There's lots of historic examples of that, and there are plenty of warnings in Scripture in regard to that. And since we see that full picture, I think the world is focused exclusively on the goodness of God. But since we see the full picture of both God's goodness and His severity, then we ought to persuade men. I hope that that's helpful and encouraging and motivating to us that we would work to persuade men uh, about what's coming. There's just a few things certain in life. Well, actually, there's a lot of things certain in life, as we said at the outset. But, But the greatest certainty of all is the certainty of death and judgment. And so we simply ask a, a, a very pertinent question this morning. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared for what is certain to come? If you're not yet a Christian, we'd have to say, we'd have to answer for you and say you are not prepared. If you're not a Christian yet, then you're certainly not prepared for what's coming. And you need to make that preparation. If you are able to understand God's truth, understand your own accountability, understand your need to be saved, then you need to take those simple steps. Hearing and believing, then repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. We're anxious to assist you in that. We'd be glad to study more with you if you need that. How can we help? If you're a Christian already, but you've slipped back, you've put yourself back in peril, we would persuade you not to stay in that circumstance, but come back to the Lord in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.